summary of Bhagavad Gita. So, and uh, it, like chapter two, encompasses everything. So, but we don't need to be in any hurry, do we? This, what are you going to do when we finish 18th chapter? We were planning on starting the Sri Upanishad. You might consider teachings of Lord Chaitanya. Should we do that next? Well, let's think about it. Okay. There's a lot of things in teachings of Lord Chaitanya. That's amazing. You show, we we can go, yeah, that's good. What were you and I talking about? We were talking about... Uh, CC, Chaitanya Charitamrita. Chaitanya Charitamrita is good. I think before Chaitanya Charitamrita, it's good to go through TLC, mm-hmm. teachings, Lord Chaitanya. You like we can do that. Yeah, no one will be unhappy with teaching. You sure? <laughs> no, thanks. So. You're sure I'm not using my bullying of the guru? <laughs> That's a good kind of bullying. <laughs> It's <laughs> like sometimes Prabhupada devotees would have an idea and Prabhupada would go, hmm, nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but he only did it he only did that around his closest men that wouldn't feel like, oh, oh, oh my ego. Nonsense. Well, what should we do, Prabhupada? <laughs> Now that you ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I kind of suggest that. Okay, let's do that. What do you think, Krishna? No? I think it sounds wonderful. It's an incredible book. All right, yeah. <clears throat> okay. I've got a bookmark in verse. It's either 19 or 20 here. Is that where we left off? Does anybody know? I believe we did 19. Huh? I believe we did do 19. So then, let's fire it off with 20. How about that? Sarva Bhuteshu in Aikam Bhavam Avyayam Ikshate Avibhaktam Vibhaktas Teshu Tajganam Vidisatvikam Translation That knowledge by which one individual spiritual nature is seen in all living entities, though they are divided into innumerable forms, you should understand to be in the mode of goodness. Purport. We're reading the purports too, right? Good. Purport by Srila Prabhupada. A person who sees one spirit soul in every being, whether a demigod, human being, animal, bird, beast, aquatic, or plant, possesses knowledge in the mode of goodness. In all living entities, one spirit soul is there, although they, are, they have different bodies in terms of their previous work. 
as described in the seventh chapter, the manifestation of the living force in every body is due to the superior nature of the Supreme Lord. Thus, to see that one superior nature, that living force in every body, is to see that the, uh, in the mode of goodness. That living energy is imperishable, although the bodies are perishable. Differences are perceived in terms of the body. Because there are many forms of material existence in conditional life, the, li the living force appears to be divided. Such impersonal knowledge is an aspect of self-realization. So, Krishna is saying that <clears throat> basically we're not our bodies. You know, that's the first baby step into spiritual life. Uh, we have to we have to cross beyond that, or how can we make any progress? You know, how can we come? to uh, self-realization if we still think we're the body. If I think of your, your body and then I compare you uh, according to the similarities or the differences in our bodies, you see, we'll always stay on the mundane level <clears throat> if we're like that, you see. Uh, this bodily conception is it's a baby, I say it's a baby step, but it's the gigantic. It's like stepping across the Grand Canyon. It's so hard. We can sit right here and agree, and you can come to that realization. You know, Krishna's right. I'm not my body. I am this eternal soul. But as soon as we get out that door, the material energy starts working on us, and we start reacting as if we are. And even it's maybe some subconscious thing because I believe that I am whatever body that I'm in, I'm in for trillions of lifetimes. And every one of them, I was convinced that that was me. So it's not an easy thing to just let that go. Intellectually, we can agree and understand, oh yeah, man, I'm not my body. But to act on that, and to react to things around you and to realize the condition. It's just like um, people may not realize it, but they are conditioned. We don't know. I'm thinking, I like this, or I like that, or whatever, but I'm just conditioned, you see. Um, culturally conditioned. It's like uh, uh, people in the Upper East part of the United States are culturally conditioned to a type of breakfast. Maybe they eat up there, where in the South it might be something entirely different. And then you see, you know, people in the South like taters and beans, they say, you know. And in other parts of the country, it's something else. In New Mexico, it's Mexican food. They like, for breakfast, they like breakfast tacos, breakfast burritos. Do there, is there breakfast tacos? I don't know, the pressure. None of them are wrong, but you can see that I 
through my birth, uh, first of all, I'm given, Krishna says, a particular type of tongue, particular type of nose, particular type of eye, particular type of ear. So then I'm influenced by everyone around me, the people that I grow up uh, around. And so that become, that's my world. When you're a, a, a newborn, that's your world. You don't know anything outside of mommy and daddy in that household there for a while. Then your knowledge kind of expands outside, gets bigger as you get a little older, maybe when you're three, four, five, whatever. When you start school, you meet, your knowledge expands, and then you start being conditioned by other people's conditions. So I'm conditioned by my family. Then I go to school and I think, wow, I like those guys there. They're cool. Well, I want to be like them because I want to hang with these guys, you know. So I wonder where he got that sweater. Yeah, I want to get some shoes like that. Because mm -hmm. I want you, when you look at me, to be as impressed with me as I am looking at these guys. I've just been conditioned, haven't I? And I'm thinking that's the way. Everyone, conditions can change them. Everyone starts to grow their hair out. Remember when that happened? There was nobody that had long hair, you know? It had happened very quickly, you see? I mean, at one point, everybody was wearing their hair like Elvis. Remember that? <laughs> so, then all of a sudden, uh, the Beatles grew their hair out, you know. They, the Beatles come along, they've got those sugar bowl haircuts. That didn't really catch on so much. Kind of, but not so much. But when they grew their hair out, man, everybody, and it spread. So we all became culturally conditioned. Long hair and a beard, that's where it's at. You know, and a particular type of music, you know. So it's this is all cultural um, conditioning, yeah. Did she look like the example of that person that ripped their pants? <laughs> he was dancing, and because he was famous, everybody thought that that was like the cool thing. Oh, Charlie Chaplin movie. Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, yeah. Somebody else started ripping their pants. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect example, you know. Oh, uh, so we see that. So, um, you can't let go of this bodily, uh, bodily conception if you try to hang on to a particular type of culture. You can't do it. It doesn't work. Why? Why do you want to hang on to it? I mean, what's the real story here? And give it a few years and that culture is going to change. I mean, we went from the 70s culture into the 80s. And spiked hair and mohawks. And <laughs> so if we're going to latch on to American culture, which one are you talking about? Current day? Oh, and then we'll just ride the cultures as they change. Current day for my particular age group, you know, 
or my particular age group in this particular part of the country, you see, you can see how foolish this is. Nowhere in Bhagavad Gita does it, uh, or anywhere in the Upanishads or anywhere is this recommended, suggested, you see? So, um, but you may say, well, what about this culture? Isn't that a material culture? What do you think? No. Why? Do you, how can you say that? Because it's God's culture. It's timeless. It's timeless. It descended with Krishna when he descended. He brings his own. He set the pace for the world around him. You see, uh, things he likes to eat. You know, Krishna didn't have to adapt to local diet when he came, when he appeared in Mathura. You know, I mean, Mother Yashoda and uh, uh, Yasudev, they were already there. They, been there for years waiting. You know, they you know, they didn't know that Krishna was going to be their son, but it was a reward to them. They wanted in previous lives, they desired that so intensely. So in all of Krishna's entourage, they were already there. Balaram came before Krishna. I mean, it's his brother. So everything came. So Krishna came wearing what Krishna wears and had an incredible influence. So what we, when we talk about uh, what's going on in India now, there's some remnants of the Vedic culture. There's remnants of it. The foods and things like that, they're similar to Krishna's food. Why do I say similar? Because a lot of times they're cooked in the modes. You know, in mode of passion, they put too much oil, too much chili. Mode of ignorance, they put onions and garlic. So they've taken this uh, Krishna diet. They've added their own little thing into it, you see. And that's the India thing. But then you go to the temples, you get a whole different flair. It's still Krishna's diet. So... Uh, yeah, Prabhupada called uh, this Vaikuntha dress. I mean, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? When the, when the first devotees wanted to uh, put on dhoti, um, when they came before Prabhupada, Prabhupada said, oh, it is just as if you have just stepped out of Vaikuntha. He was amazed. He's American. Wow, they're putting on this. Oh, very good. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we cannot, I mean, Krishna, again, over and over and over in Bhagavad Gita, he's, he's trying to tell us, you're not your body. Why does he say it so many times? That should be, we should have been able to deal with that in chapter two and put it away. Why is it? Chapter after chapter after chapter, Krishna is going back. It's not that he waits until the 18th chapter and it says, oh, by the way, remember when we were talking about you're not your body? It's, it's all through there, you see. 
Why? Because we got to hear it again and again because some of us are so culturally uh, conditioned. It's very difficult. Very difficult to hang on to. Some, did you have a question? Was it you? Uh, I was just going to say that through this conversation about Krishna's culture, recently we had different like just realizations that it gives us the opportunity to deepen our devotion, uh, please Krishna more. Yeah. Because obviously there's ways that Krishna likes us to make offerings to him. Because he's yeah. a person. And as soon as like you take the culture out of it, you eliminate like the personal but I'm I'm doing it the way I want and the way they want. Oh, I get what you mean. I've actually taken Krishna's desires out of it. So I'm not surrendered to Krishna anymore. Is that what you're saying? You see? I believe all, all through the Gita, Krishna says again and again, surrender unto me, surrender, surrender unto me. How many times? At one time I knew, but how many times does he say that? It's like, man, he just keeps throwing that out there. You know, why? Because I want to surrender to you. I want to have this, this is what lovers do. I want to have this tight love affair. Oh, so you say you're surrendered to me. Let me see. Wouldn't you like to do like that? Well, yeah, maybe. Oh. If you're kind of maybe on the fence with your faith, but if your faith is, is turned into knowledge, Krishna says, wouldn't you like to do something a little different? You'd say, no, Krishna. No, why, why? What's in it for you, Krishna, if I do like that? Rather than material, uh, materially uh, contaminated soul says, what's in it for me? Why, Krishna, what would be in it for you? How would that be showing my love to you if I did something entirely different? You know, I kind of, I'm kind of impressed by you, Krishna. I kind of want to be like you. I mean, you told me I'm your part and parcel, so I should be like you. You see? I mean, you told me you're part, my, that I'm your part and parcel hundreds of times. You've repeated that, too. I get it. I am your part and parcel. Now, I am not my body. I am your part and parcel eternally. I get it. Until I get that, uh, then I can be swayed, you know, one way or the other. It's kind of like telling some lady that you, uh, or somebody else, you know, that you love them. You're the only one for me. And then maybe sneaking out on a date with someone else. You see, well, if your love is secure, then you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't. You may have a chance. No. Well, my love is there. So, okay. You want to read uh, verse 21? Okay. 
Uh, you want to tackle the Sanskrit? If you don't want to, you can just do the English. Actually, I don't have my glasses with me, so maybe just the English. Okay. That knowledge by which one sees that in every <coughs> body there is a different type of living entity, you should understand to be in the mode of passion. Can you read the purport too? Oh, sure. Purport. The concept that the material body is in the living entity and that with the destruction of the body, the consciousness is also destroyed is called knowledge in the mode of passion. According to that knowledge, bodies differ from one another because of the development of different types of consciousness. Otherwise, there is no separate soul which manifests consciousness. The body is itself the soul, and there is no separate soul beyond the body. According to such knowledge, consciousness is temporary. Or else there are no individual souls, but there is an all-pervading soul which is full of knowledge. And this body is a manifestation of temporary ignorance. Or beyond this body, there is no special individual or supreme soul. All such conceptions, conceptions are considered products of the mode of passion. Any comments on this? Well, it seems like it covers a lot of uh, different classes of people, like scientists. Mm. Seem a lot of it's in the mode of passion, if you're going to this. And also, it reminded me of Buddhists also, where he talks about, towards the end here, where he talks about uh, no individual souls, but there is an all-pervading soul. It is all one. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of those two things. Yeah. That's like that, I, you just reminded me of this joke that I heard where Dalai Lama goes into a pizzeria and orders a pizza. They say, what do you want? Look here. And he said, make me one with everything. <laughs> some reporter, some, it was, somebody was interviewing the Dalai Lama and told him that joke. And he said, when did I say that? <laughs> oh, then he got it. He laughed. Oh. <laughs> All right, back to Jesse. Yatu Kutsnavarikash Ikashmin Karya Satama Hitukam Atatarva Navad Alpamcha Tamasam Udaritam. Very good. And that knowledge by which one is attached to one kind of work as the all in all, without knowledge of the truth, and which is very meager, is said to be in the mode of darkness. Purport. The knowledge of the common man is always in the mode of darkness or ignorance, because every living entity in conditional life is born into the mode of ignorance. One who does not develop knowledge through the authorities or scriptural injunctions has knowledge that is limited to the body. He is not concerned about acting in terms of the directions of scripture. For him, God is money, 
and knowledge gains the satisfaction of bodily demands. Such knowledge has no connection with the absolute truth. It is more or less like the knowledge of the ordinary animals, the knowledge of eating, sleeping, defending, and mating. Such knowledge is described here as the product of the mode of darkness. In other words, knowledge concerning the spirit soul beyond this body is called knowledge in the mode of goodness, and knowledge producing many theories and doctrines by dint of mundane logic and mental speculation is the product of the mode of passion, and knowledge concerned with only keeping the body comfortable is said to be in the mode of ignorance. Yeah, that knowledge by which one is attached to is one kind of work, as the all in all, without knowledge of the truth and which is very meager, is said to be in the mode of darkness. I think Prabhupada really sums it up right away in his purport. The knowledge of the common man is always in the mode of darkness or ignorance because every living entity in conditioned life is born into the mode of ignorance. Like I was saying earlier, we're born... Uh, it's like sometimes people ask me, huh, where were you born? And I say, same place you were. Really? You're from Atlanta? No. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, just like you. All Magyantim are in the... You know, so uh, we were all pitched into this darkness. Why, heck, we didn't know anything. It's just like uh, you get a new computer, and there's very little information. There's no data. What's, I just got a new computer. Why, there's no documents. There's no pictures. There's, there's some basic and the, has a system to operate. So it's like saying to me, give me, make me intelligent. Give me intelligence so that I can use that. I have this system. I have this brain. It's an operating system, but there's no data to pull out. So from birth, the world starts giving you. You see? What does it give you? <laughs> More ignorance. Lack of knowledge. I mean, you may learn some really neat things, like uh, mundane things. You know, you may learn how to be uh, an engineer and design nuclear weapons or cars or whatever, or you might learn to be a cobbler and make shoes, whatever. You may learn all of this different stuff. You may even get into, quote unquote, higher education and get into the speculative realm of philosophy, which doesn't really prove, but it's, it's nice mental exercise. And to quote, well, this one says, and that one says, and we debate and admit that we disagree. Because <laughs> if they could, con uh, if they could um, uh, conquer each other, then there would only be one. After all these millennia, all the other philosophies would be put away. But we, we see that you've got your Nietzsche and you've got this one and you've got all these guys that are side by side and, and people try to hop from one to the other or use them all. Uh, I was uh, talking about this philosophy group at one point in UVA 
was a political philosophy, and I was trying to help this professor set up some online educational system. And when they got together to talk about philosophy, it was like they loved it. And, and they would, like, someone would make a really good point, but then the other person would say, But if you look at it this way, and then they flip it around. Yeah. They, they'd always, there always be something, you nev they never reached a conclusion. There was never it, a conclusion. It doesn't reach conclusions. <laughs> and they love thinking about it differently. They love it! It's just like. <laughs> It was really frustrating for me. What, what is the conclusion? Yeah. <laughs> Make your point. <laughs> there isn't a point. That's the point. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've argued with these guys and given them a hard time, you know. Uh, and then some, once in a while they'll ask me, where, where did you go to school? You mean college? Yeah. I'm, the only time I've ever been on a college campus was when I was looking for a date or on Harinam Sankirtan or speaking. I don't have any. Where did you learn this? I don't know. I don't know. I read Prabhupada's books. And Krishna says that if you surrender it to him, he'll give you what you need. No, you know, I eliminate you from within. And I am uh, a cheat entity. I have all knowledge. So if I can get my cheat, or part of my cheat factor, my uh, all-knowing, then I've got enough. I've never felt like uh, there isn't anything... I mean, really, when I, Krishna's helped me in so many, so many ways. Uh, I went to work many years ago in the insurance business, but it was, uh, not, you know, after some time, I was in kind of like what they call the upper crust of it. I was, uh, I called on large corporations that were big enough to self-insure their medical plan, their employee benefits. So that meant I had to design the plan. I don't have any. And uh, these types of plans that are under federal law, not individual state laws. Like if you're, uh, if you buy an insured plan in the state of Arizona, then the state of Arizona has insurance rules that you have to follow. But if you self-insure, that's under federal law or under ERISA. Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1976. Now, very, very few people at that time, anyway, understood ERISA law. But I was, after a short time, known nationwide as an expert. I had consultants calling me from all over the country, asking for a definition that, can, can my employer have this type of benefit and not this? You know, do they do, do the proceeds of the money collect? Does it have to go into a trust? What kind of trust? Well, I don't know how I got to find. I don't know how I knew that, and it was amazing at the time. But I knew it, and I would always go down the hall to somebody that knew bits and pieces, and I would say, "Is this true?" Well, yeah, that's true. 
I don't know. So somehow or other, I mean, I'm not trying to sound mysterious, but so Krishna gave me what I needed to, to be to become very successful in that field. So, uh, am I getting off track? <laughs> No, but I'd like to talk to you about buying an insurance plan from you. Why, sure. <laughs> Have your people call my people. Yeah, I hate to let my my mind my, my I hate to let my mind wander because sometimes it doesn't come back. So I'm just wandering. It's, <laughs> we need a laugh sign. <laughs> or canned laughter. We can just have canned laughter, you know. I can just push a button. <laughs> we can get an app on our phone. A laughter app? Oh, I gotta get one of those. <laughs> I'd like a drum roll, you know, kind of like <laughs> Oh. Oh, it's Christmas. All right. Who's next? Yatam Sangha Rahitam Aragadveshatakitam Apala Prepsuna Karma Yatat Sadhikam Uchate. That action which is regulated and which is performed without attachment, without love or hatred, without desire for prudent results, is said to be in the mode of Regulated occupational duties as prescribed in the scriptures in terms of the different orders and divisions of society, performed without attachment or proprietary rights, and therefore without any love or hatred, and performed in Krishna consciousness for the satisfaction of the Supreme, without self-satisfaction or self-gratification, <coughs> are called actions of the mode of goodness. <clears throat> Does anybody have any comments on that? What's Krishna saying here? What does he mean without love or hatred? I have a question. Go ahead. So Prabhupada, he, I'm just trying to understand the difference between like personal preferences and self-gratification. How does a devotee, because Prabhupada, you know, obviously everybody's a person, so everybody has their preferences. And Prabhupada has certain preferences for Prashada. And obviously, like everything we offer to him, he's going to offer to Krishna. Mm -hmm. But how do we understand the difference between being a person and having preferences? And being on the material plane and the mind. Our preferences should be based on uh, preferring to please Guru and Krishna. Now that sounds, when we're at the bottom of the steps and we've got a long way to climb to spiritual realization, that doesn't sound very attractive. You know, because I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do, and if I want to do, and with whoever I want to do, because that's the way I, I'm a rebel. I left Krishna. I came to this material world and get away from that crap. You know, doing what he wants to do. You know, I'm in the material world. I can do whatever I want to do. And I'll show you. You see what I mean? That's where we are. So it's kind of, it's a little bitter in the beginning, but it, it's sweet in the end when we start to 
It's just like uh, I was hanging around Prabhupada's room on the second floor uh, in Mayapur in 1976, and I wasn't supposed to be there. But uh, I knew Tamal Krishna Maharaj, and they had seen me with him, and he was always with Prabhupada coming and going. So the people who were standing guard, not anybody could just walk up, you know. It felt like I was okay. I kind of acted, I walked like I was, I had some business. So, you know where Prabhupada's room is on the second floor, don't you? I think so. Yeah. So, of the Lotus Building. So I got up there, and I'm just kind of hanging around outside. So then the door opens, and here comes Pusta Krishna Swami, and he's got Prabhupada's remnants. And so he looked at me, and he said, I know what you're doing here. You're waiting for some of Prabhupada's remnants, aren't you? And I said, you bet. So he just gives me a handful, puts it in my eye. Wow. And he said, you want some more, don't you? I said, you bet. So he gave me a little. <laughs> so I remember that, that taste, you know, and I'm analyzing the spices and the the whole thing, and that became, to me, Hare Krishna. That's what Prabhupada likes. Prabhupada likes it like this. Because I had first hand. And then I would inquire, you know, from his cooks that I knew, how do you make that taste like that? You know, it, that became kind of like my standard. You know? So I want, when I cook, I want it to taste like that. That just kind of happened, you see. It was incredibly attractive because this is right off Prabhupada's plate and he loved it, you see, so, uh, yeah. If we're going through the buffet, like the windows, and it's all prasadam, and, but we're still facing it, like I'm facing it on my preferences of what I want, what, what position am I, am I in? That's fine. Pick what you like. Pick what appeals. Like say I say like in the fruit bowl there's some mangoes and I, and I know that Krishna likes the mangoes and I select those. Is that on a higher level of devotion? Is this making new food? Well it's all prasadam. Uh, it's kind of getting borderline. You know, being choosy. So it's okay. It's okay. Uh, when, when Prabhupada, one part of that story, when he finished eating, he would eat, be eating out of bowls and he would dump it all on his tray and he would stir it up. I saw him doing it later on. He would stir it up. And so uh, I asked Pusta Krishna Swami and Tamal Krishna Maharaj, I said, why does Prabhupada take his remnants and put it on the tray and stir it up? He says, to keep you from picking one out of the, over the other. Otherwise, you may think, I don't like eggplant, but I'll, I like this. Well, it's maha, maha, prasadam. So if it's being served to you and you see some prasadam that um, doesn't appeal to your tongue, if it's maha, then you should say, and it's something you don't like, then you say, just give me a little bit, just a pinch to honor it. See, you don't say, no, no, I don't take that. That's not 
that's not good. If you're going through the buffet, take what you want. Take what you want. So there's a difference between Mahaprasadam and yeah. regular Yeah. Yeah. Although we should still treat regular prasadam with great respect. You know, if someone, we should take prasadam whenever someone offers it. Without saying, no, no, I don't like that. If it's something you don't really like, then you say, Can you just give me a pinch? Because I want to honor it. And then, oh, teeny. Okay. Now that's if you want to operate on a higher consciousness, you know. Because it's not food. It's, it's, uh, when we offer something to Krishna, Krishna accepts it by becoming the offering. It's, it be, he becomes the offering. Did you have a question, Sean? It's going to make a classic joke. What if it's not organic? Then <laughs> <laughs> it became organic. When Krishna accepts it, uh, it becomes purified. I just wanted uh, to introduce my friend, uh, Max Hume. He's from Alaska. You have friends? <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> From Alaska? Yes. Yeah. I spent a summer in Alaska several years ago. Whereabouts? In uh, uh, Denali National Park, oh. near there. It's uh, south of the park. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the place. It's at the 229 mar mile marker. On I don't know exactly where that is. I'm in Juneau. It's a huge state, though. So. <laughs> yeah, Juneau's over to the east, southeast, southeast of yeah. Anchorage. Mm -hmm. There's a joke up there. Uh, Juneau, the capital of Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> Juneau, the capital of Alaska? <laughs> it's Juneau. Yeah, I know. Juneau? Juneau. Yeah, I know. Juneau? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always surprised why Anchorage wasn't the capital. Yeah, they, they voted to move it and they never ended up moving it. Yeah. So. It's nice having a smaller city. Yeah. Have be the capital. Are you familiar with uh, Anchorage? And... Uh, not too familiar. Yeah. No. I've actually haven't been up there. <laughs> Southeast is like that, its own. That little town uh, north. As you're going out of uh, Anchorage, Wasilla, mm -hmm. where the governor, mm -hmm. what's her, um, Sarah Palin, yeah, bumped into her. Once. She lived there, and uh, I saw her and her husband Scott. They lived on the lake there in Wasilla. What a lake! Have you ever been there? I haven't been there. No. <laughs> my God, my friend and I, Maturnath, would walk around that lake. It was. Uh, of course, this, the fall comes in August up there, you know. So we're in September, and it's just like walking around that lake, and it's just like oh, really hard to meditate on chanting Hare Krishna because it's just like the material energy is knocking us over here. So, But I saw them in their airplane, their pontoon airplane coming oh, yeah. and going, you know. Yeah. What out of 12 people in Alaska have an airplane? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because you need one. <laughs> Either an airplane or a boat. What's your name? I'm Max. Max? Mm -hmm. Jivananda. 
Japan. Glad to meet you. How long are you going to be here? Um, I have a flight out of Phoenix in four or five minutes. Yeah. So. Well, it's nice to see you. It was nice to see you too. Yeah, come Thanks. see us again if you get a chance. Thanks for letting me see this. Come see us on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Free food. Really good. <laughs> so, all right. All right, Christian. I have one question about this. In a couple of these verses, they uh, mention the mode of goodness mm-hmm. in a positive manner. I thought we were supposed to be above the modes of material nature. Well, yeah. But of the, mo- the three material modes... Uh-huh. Goodness is the best. Because when you're in goodness, you can make better uh, discernment, better decisions. Now, we want to transcend all of the three modes and get into pure goodness, which means my thoughts, activities, they're all for Krishna, to please Krishna. Thoughts, words, and uh, actions, all to please Guru and Krishna. And if I'm doing like that, now again, that flies in the face of someone who's a materialist. Why the heck would I want to do that? I came to this world to get away from being like that. You see? Um, you said something that reminded me. It's, it's quite okay to use your God-given skills to, to serve Guru and Krishna. I mean, that's, that's making a God-given skill uh, really work, you know. So, however, sometimes we have skills that we deem that we can't offer to Guru and Krishna. So, a um, good example, 1968, in uh, San Francisco, Tamal Krishna Maharaj was, uh, at that time, before he met the devotees, v- a very well-known flautist. He played the flute, jazz, and all those cool San Francisco hip places. He was well-known. He was one of the best that ever played the flute. And so we were, he was telling me this story and he said, when I joined the, the movement, I put it away and haven't picked one up since. I said, well, why would you do that? You can't chant while you're playing the flute. He said, I couldn't offer that to Prabhupada. Prabhupada didn't need a flute player. Well, now other people come and they're good poets or writers or painters. And they offer, you know, they can do that. They can, and maybe he could have found a way that he could use his flute to play to, you know, as an offering. But he was able to just drop the attachment, laid it down, never picked one up. And this was in 1980. Well, this was in 1978 when he told me this story. So that was 10 years. He hadn't touched the flute in 10 years. <clears throat> so, 
know, that's, is that an extreme example? I don't know. But he was really a dedicated soul to his guru. He was really dedicated. There's that one picture of Prabhupada sitting on the Vyasasan and Tamal sitting beside him with that look on his face. Like, I'm ready to do anything you say. <laughs> it's, just, it's my pleasure in life. You know. But he offered many other skills to Prabhupada. Huh? Like, like he offered many other skills to Prabhupada. Oh, yeah. Oh, tons of. Yeah. Tons it of. That, it was not that particular. Yeah, yeah. That was just that particular one. He decided, I don't see how I can use it. So he just laid it down. Is that required? No, no. Doesn't mean you're, but, you know, if you can't use it for Krishna, uh, then you may determine, well, I don't see any use for it. Just, you know, kind of let it go. That's that art of uh, bhakti yoga, that is the art of determining, my dear Krishna, what can I do to please you? You see, what can I do? That's what this bhakti yoga is all about. All right, next. Yatu kamet kamet suna karma sahana sahan karena va punaha kriyate baula yasam Tad Rajasam Uda Uda Dram. But the action performed with great effort by one seeking to gratify his desires and enacted from a sense of false ego is called action in the mode of passion. Um, action performed with great effort by one to gratify his desires. I want things to be the way I want to be. I want them to be. So that's in the mode of passion. So, and that's very common in the material world. So many people uh, are performing actions because I know what I want from my actions. You know, I'm pursuing a career in insurance because I want the reaction of money. You know, job security, money, you know, whatever. Fame, profit, adoration, distinction, it all kind of comes together. So yeah, it's in a mode of passion. You see, it's common, very common. Practically everyone is involved in that. You see, that the desire to be distinguished. I want to do something that you haven't thought of yet, or you. See, I want to take it a different. Way. Well, that's mode of passion. Now, if you come up with something that's uh, maybe a little different, um, you, you, you might be able to offer that to Guru and Krishna. But it should be because you're simply wanting to do uh, the bidding of the Guru. That doesn't mean that the Guru manages every word and everything that everybody says. No, you're going to do your own thing, but you're going to run it from time to time. You'll get some advice. You know, it's just like some people 
uh, get tax advice from an accountant. Can I deduct this or should I do this? Or should I have a mutual fund or you know, should I do these? Or you may get uh, advice from uh, a real estate professional. Yeah, I'm going to buy a house. Could you help me on this? You know, because I don't know. I could be cheated. You see, so on and so on. So it's spiritual life. You, you go to the guru. I'd like to, I was thinking this. What is your thoughts? You know, the guru is not a micromanager. It's not necessary. It's pretty much impossible, really. Where's uh, Chaitanya Leela? She's not feeling well. Oh, really? I heard her coughing too, so maybe she's coming down with something. Mm. Okay, sorry to hear. All right, next one. The action performed in illusion is disregard of scriptural injunctions and without concern for future bondage or for violence or distress caused to others is said to be in the mode of ignorance. Purport. One has to give account of one's actions to the state or to the agents of the Supreme Lord called the Yamadutta. Irresponsible work is destructive because it destroys the regular principles of scriptural injunction. It is often based on violence and is distressing to other living entities. Such irresponsible work is carried out in the life of one's personal experience. This is called illusion, and all such illusory work is a product of the mode of ignorance. That action performed in illusion in disregard of scriptural injunctions and without concern for future bondage or for violence, for violence or distress caused to others, said to be in a mode of ignorance. So if we're doing something, I may do something that uh, I know may cause you distress. You're gonna think, wow, I didn't like, why did you do that? That's in a mode of ignorance. You see, devotee is one who doesn't put people into distress. That's the, the Vaishnava doesn't do that. We're not supposed to do that. That doesn't mean that if somebody's trying to rob uh, the restaurant, that you don't put them into distress by getting them in a headlock or something. You know? So no, but um, for my personal gain or for no reason at all, why, if I put you into distress, then I'm, I'm in mode of ignorance, you see. Now we see a lot of that in the material world. We see a lot of passion, we see a lot of ignorance. We see a lot of people who do things and sometimes it looks like, uh, it's like my mother used to say when she'd be criticizing someone she, that was dishonest, she'd say, yeah, he'd, he'd tell a lie when the truth would do better. Now, have you ever heard that? Yeah, you tell a lie when the truth would do better. She would say that about politicians and you know, whoever, neighbors, me. <laughs> so yeah, that you know, so that's motivation. Then some people would will do something 
when it would be a lot better to have done something different. What is their motivate? Well, they were in the mode of ignorance. So you're expecting them to have an intelligent motivation by another in the mode of ignorance. You see? And the problem is that these poor folks don't know that there's a mode of goodness and a mode of passion and a mode of, good, uh, of ignorance. And they don't know that, first of all, that these three modes are there that are controlling everything. They don't know that there's that transcendental uh, mode of pure goodness. You see, they don't know there's different modes. They're thinking, I just want to do it. You see, I'll get some gain, whatever. My ego or whatever, I'll get some gain. So they, you tell them you're acting in the mode of ignorance and they become offended. Are you saying I'm ignorant? Well, you're acting ignorant. Yeah. Why do you think we're, we're so afraid to give up habits, give up bad habits? Why are we so afraid? To, Why are we so afraid? To give up, yeah, to give up. Because it seems like, like it's so hard or it's almost fearful. Out of attachment. We're attached. You know, we're, we're just attached to it. And sometimes it's not graceful to break attachments. And sometimes it's just subconscious. I don't know that I'm doing this. Um, it's very hard to understand. Very hard to understand people. You know, their motivations. When, when they're materially motivated. When they're spiritually motivated, they leave a breath of fresh air. You see? Their actions and the way they deal with you make you feel better. It's like they're acting like they're kind of like a part and parcel of Krishna. You see? Uplift. You see? So, but when they're in the modes, look out. You never know what could happen. And they may argue with you. Oh, why would that make you mad? Turn it on you. So you're angry because I did that. Well, I think don't you think you're being a little sensitive? So in other words, I just blamed you for it. Right? They kind of pitch it right back to you. Yeah, but you do. Well, but you. So they'll. Oh, there's what I used to refer to as the three D's. When you get into somebody, they've wronged you. They'll deny it. No, I didn't. Then they'll defend it. You know, let's see. Deflect. Deflect. You know, he, you know, he's like that. He was saying, you know, or, uh, First of all, they'll sometimes they'll just defend it. They'll say, I didn't do it, but then they start to defend it. Well, it wasn't that bad. You know, I mean, why are you getting so upset? Now I've just deflected it to you. It's actually your fault. It's what I call the squirm. And when you get with somebody like that, save your breath. Just kind of 
whatever. You're you're caught in the modes. Whereas if someone's in, in the mode of yeah, go ahead. Um, just real quick, um, if you what mode would it be in if say someone presents to you like, okay, you have this fault and you say, Okay, you're right, like you think about it and your willingness to be able to accept responsibility, what for something you may have done, what is Someone who's pointing out a fault. Mm-hmm. And your, will, your willingness to accept that and kind of reflect on that. What mode would that be in? It sounds like, uh, to me, the mode of, of pure goodness. If you're a devotee, where it's definitely, I would think, mode of goodness because someone's pointing out a fault that you have and you're saying... I acknowledge. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I do. What else can they say? There shouldn't be much more discussion. Yeah, you're right. I do have that fault. But I I can I can control it. I will. With your help. I can and I will. Now you've met someone that sounds kind of like a devotee. Because there's humility there too. Humility? Yeah, humility leads leads to reality. Yeah. Without defending, or well, it's because of you, or it's it's because of the way I was raised. Blame your parents or whatever. No, you're exactly right. I do have that. Will you pray for me? You see how, you know, I'm acknowledging you're right. I one time heard, uh, hold on to your question. I one time uh, heard Tamal Krishna Maharaj when he was attacked by someone I'm not going to mention the guy's name because I don't like to say his name. He's a really funny guy. He actually accused Tamal of, of poisoning Prabhupada later on. He used to be temple president of Dallas. And anyway, he, he had this meeting with Tamal Krishna and he said, you're puffed up and you're this and you're that. And he just went on and on and on. And I'm thinking, boy... When you take a breath, he's gonna come out with his nashringa potency and he's, he's gonna blow you away. So when he stopped, Tamal had his head down and he looked up and he said, anything else? And the guys think, oh, I'm in trouble. He said, no. And he said, I'm actually all that, but I'm a lot more than that. And you're not, uh, you, you can't see me through my eyes. You don't know where my mind has been, the thoughts that I've had, the desires that I've had, those that I've acted on and those that I haven't. I'm far worse than you think. But all I want to do is serve my spiritual master. And if I've stepped on your toes in doing that, I don't apologize. 
But if you can show me how I've done some act that didn't serve my guru, I humbly apologize. <laughs> so no yelling? No, no, I'm a lot worse than you say. And I talked to him about that in his room after that meeting. And I said, I was kind of blown away. He said, that's the only way to react. You know your guilt. Deal with it. You don't have to vomit all of it, you know. No, no, I'm far worse than you say I am. Now, I know that. And if you knew what I knew, you'd be talking a lot longer about my faults and places where I need to be improved on. So I know it. And I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to serve my spiritual master. It's all, I've, it's all I've ever wanted to do since I became a devotee. Sometimes I might make mistakes, but yeah. It's amazing this, you know, his qualities of tolerance and humility. Um, yeah. At the same time, though, he didn't justify necessarily what he did as opposed to what the other person was doing. He didn't. He, didn't, he wasn't going to compromise on no. serving his guru. He didn't defend, he didn't deflect, you know, he didn't do any of those things. He didn't deny it. He said, he agreed, everything you say is right. And much more that you don't know about. I am puffed up, but I, I will be better. I will be better. I was thinking of like moral, moral relativism and how if you, if you don't have you know, the absolute truth, then you can get in an argument and you can never prove that you're right over the other person because they can always say, come from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to get your, um, your response to, to that particular point. Like if you're, say you're in some sort of, unfortunately you're in some sort of debate or argument. And you might be able to take a humble position by Kumar Krishna Maharaj, but at the same time, you can base base it on the actual facts of the activities, you know, in line with you know, the Shastra, in line with the Guru, in terms of like who is behaving right, who is not behaving right, as opposed to just... Then you have to take that path. There are times when you defend, not yourself, uh, if I'm doing what I know Prabhupada wants me to do, and you're saying, no, Prabhupada doesn't want that, I have a right to defend what Prabhupada wants me to do. You see? Does that make any sense? Is that answering your... Yeah. If, if I'm for Guru and Krishna, I have a right to defend my position. Unless you can prove how I'm deviating. You see, or maybe am I making things uh, unnecessarily difficult for other people? And you know, search the modes that Krishna's talking about here. This is a very important thing for us to know about because the modes are there and they're acting on us constantly. So we have to be able to have a, whenever there's an, a confrontation or some encounter, you gotta have a, a, a gauge. When you start to speak, 
What mode, say to yourself, what mode are we in? Well, you, oops, mode of passion's coming out. Dial it down, dial it down, dial it down. Take a breath. Would you like to reconsider what you just said? Now, that's a powerful, you know, um, reaction. Would you like to reconsider what you just said? Well, no, I'm, I'm, okay, so now you're in the mode of passion and I'm staying calm, so I think I've got the upper hand here. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna remain calm. And sometimes when people are, in, are emotional, you don't react at all. You don't react at all. I've had people do things to me that were what I considered an act of war. And I don't react for months. <laughs> I've trained myself over the decades to be that way. And they wonder, what's he thinking? How come he have It's like, mm -hmm. But then when it gets time, the time will come. You have to maintain that. As TKG used to say, you have to become an ice man sometimes. You don't react. You're, you're programmed through the modes to the mode of passion. How dare you do that? Nobody does that to me. Ah, stay out of the modes. Just don't react. Boy, that really gives you a big sword. Like they have the sword of Damocles hanging over their head because they're thinking, I know <laughs> there's something going on in your head. And then when it lines up, you know, and it fits your service to Guru and Krishna, then you can say it in a much more calm fashion and be much more effective than if you just <sighs> Nobody does that to me. Oh, we're really, we're really humble, aren't we? <laughs> you know, so there are ways to say these things without. And you need to cause minimum distress when it comes time to do the chastising. All you want to do, you're not in the mode of passion, you're not in the mode of ignorance, all you want to do is to set things straight. That's all I want to do. Don't want to hurt. Don't want to disturb. You want to just be right, just for the sake Let's of it. Just make it right. That way, we can offer this to Guru and Krishna. We can make this into a devotional service. Because, I mean, how can I make me getting very angry at somebody, how can I make that a service to Guru and Krishna? And you got, I mean, that's debatable, but that's not a good. Now, let's stay calm. Let's make it right. Hold a grudge? I think not. Let's just make it right. There's one exception I saw with in Krishna Conscious, um, and I think maybe I don't understand the circumstance, because we're in a pu public forum. Seems like mm -hmm. in a public forum, like, Prabhupada would never stand down uh, if other people are hearing. Like if, you know, somebody's speaking like a nonsense or by philosophy, 
Sometimes oh. Prabhupada would like be yelling at them and arguing. <laughs> then you have a duty to defeat them. And in the public forum. In the public forum. Yeah. You've got a duty. You can't let that you 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 can't let that go undefeated. Yeah. You've got to say, wait a minute, no, that's not true. You just misspoke. You have a duty. Or it's kind of like anti-preaching. If you don't, now there are many reasons why people may not call somebody out. Gee whiz, I think I'll keep my mouth shut because this will be over pretty soon or I don't feel like it. Or the person who said this, I don't want to make them mad at me. I want to stay on their good side, you know. So in other words, uh, all the ears that heard it, I don't really care. I care more about my relationship with this person or just getting through this and going on to my breakfast or whatever. I care more about that than what you heard that may be wrong or incomplete. You didn't hear the whole truth. You know, it's like somebody making a statement and they're lying by omission. There's a psychological term for like, if I tell you part of something that's true, but for the truth to be recognized, there has to be the rest of the story. Otherwise, this was misleading. You see what I mean? And it was misleading, so it was, a, it was false. I just told you a lie. Although it was true. But if you heard the rest of the story, you'd realize, oh, the truth is over here. You see? Now, if you can do that, then you're lacking in devotional qualities. How can you offer that to Krishna? So I have some personal material motive all right, is there going to be Hari Nam tonight? Yes. All right, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm at a, we might as well wrap it up. Okay. We were, we were going to officially cancel next week, but we don't have to. It's just because I'm not going to be able to organize it, but if you all want to come. I think I'm going to take next Saturday and okay. work on some things and just okay. rest. Okay. You're going to be gone soon, aren't you? Yeah, so it might be a couple of weeks. We might have a break. All right. Yeah. But it'll be on the weekly schedule. So. If anybody else wants to come together and meet, you're more than welcome. Good to see you again. Thanks. Thanks. Good to see you again, dear lady. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. <laughs> I just can't get enough of you. <laughs> or the rest of you, wouldn't you? If we could actually see each other as we truly are, the living entity, the pure part and parcel of Krishna, then you'll feel that way about everyone. I can't get enough of you. So, all right, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.